0: I'm reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it's page 976. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh,
1: Thanks, Jody. I remember when Miriam and I were first married, we went to see a movie called I Am Legend. You guys ever seen I Am Legend? Let me tell you who was not a legend after taking his wife to see I Am Legend. You're looking at him. I didn't know it yet, but Miriam hates zombie movies. I didn't even know the movie was going to be a zombie movie. It's not like I love zombie movies, but I was rapidly removed from legend status after forcing her into the theater for that one. I think the most disturbing thing about zombies is that they're kind of a mirage of life, not actual life. They kind of look and move like they're living when they're actually dead. And the goal in these movies and shows is always to avoid becoming one of the walking dead, right? One of the zombies. In fact, uh, if a healthy human is infected, they'll often kill themselves before they turn into a zombie. Aren't we encouraged this morning? The plot normally circles around whether or not the unaffected people can find an immunization against the sickness before it's too late. So there's a lot of desperation in these movies and in these shows. No one wants to be a zombie. No one wants to have the appearance of living while actually being dead. Everyone wants to be truly and fully alive. Well, this struck me this past week when I went to Abington Hospital for an MRI on my arm, Uh, and that incredibly long litany of questions they had to ask me about other problems that I might have before I could go into the big donut or whatever that thing is called that I had to go into for the MRI. Uh, So many questions. Have you had a shunt put in? Do you have metal in your body? Are you allergic to these 67,000 medicines? And on and on the list went, and I kid you not, it was probably 12 straight minutes of questions, and every single question was a no, I think, but it... It took them a while to get through it, and it just got me thinking. There are so many problems in people's bodies that they are desperate to fix because they want deeply to live full and whole and long lives. It's why the medical industry is such a thriving one. We want life to the fullest as human beings, and that's a good thing. When the Apostle Paul sat down to write this letter to the Ephesians, he was aiming at this very thing, life. He was writing in order to prevent us from becoming the walking dead, spiritually speaking. Human beings who look shiny from the outside but are dead on the inside and doomed because of it. So this is the big idea we're going to circle around today. God rescues us, the walking dead, to showcase his glorious grace. If There's one central takeaway from the first 10 verses. I think it's this. God rescues us, the walking dead, to showcase his glorious grace. And the difference, says Paul, between the walking dead and the walking living is just one thing. It's grace. The difference between the walking dead and the walking living is one thing. God's grace. That's the immunization that you need most. The grace of God. God's grace brings life and it protects you from being a spiritual zombie. A walking, spiritually dead person. A few weeks ago, we defined grace like this. Grace is getting good stuff when you deserve bad stuff. That's kind of like the bottom shelf uh, definition, I think. But here's something maybe a little bit more adult for us this morning. Grace is the unmerited gift of salvation given on account of Jesus' righteousness, not our own. And maybe one other way of saying it. Grace is God giving me the favor due to Jesus and giving Jesus the condemnation due to me. We sing about grace, we talk about grace. Sometimes we don't even know what we're talking and singing about because we don't take the time to really think about what does this word mean. Well, it's God giving me the favor due to Jesus and giving Jesus the condemnation due to me. That's what we mean when we say amazing grace. We've attempted to convey this truth to our kids before. There have been times, believe it or not, when my kids have fallen short of the glory of God and have sinned. Um, they've acted in some sort of way that deserves some kind of correction or consequence. And, I, and occasionally I have done this to just give them a little taste of grace. I'll sit down with them and I'll soberly and very directly uh, address their sin. It's not a laughing matter in our, in our house. I'll tell them it's serious. This sin, I'll say, is the reason Jesus had to die on the cross. It's that serious. God hates it that much. Then I'll tell them whatever their consequence is going to be, and then we'll begin moving toward that consequence, whatever it may be. And in the last minute before their consequence begins, I'll tell them that they're not going to get the correction, and instead, I'll give them a piece of candy. Now, kids, if you want your parents to teach you what grace is, you just bring this up on the way home, okay? you got plenty of candy still left in your kitchens, I'm sure. And they'll respond, wait, wait, what, Daddy? I thought you were going to give me a correction you're going to give me a Reese's cup instead? Well, did you deserve the correction? Well, yes. Well, this is grace. This is giving you something you don't deserve in place of giving you something that you do deserve. That's grace. And that's how God treats us in Jesus. We deserve the penalty of our sin, but instead we get forever with God. That's grace. Well, going to circle around three main truths today with regard to god's grace and just to allay your fears the first one is much longer than the second two okay so we get to the end of the first point and you're getting nervous rest assured the last two are much shorter so take a second real quick get all the zombie thoughts out of the way and out of your head pray that you don't see them in your dreams tonight hope you're good to go with that we're going to jump in here i am a big believer in chiropractors I know that there are many out here who are like anti-chiros, right? Uh, You kind of look snidely at me because of that. And I just feel a great deal of sadness for you in that. (laughs) You do not know what you are missing by not going to the chiropractor. Even if the science on it is kind of sketchy, I'm going to keep believing, okay? They have just helped me so much. I played football in high school, and I got a bunch of lower back injuries during that time. And I remember times when I could barely walk. I mean, just a very, very uh, terrible limp, you know, as a 17 or 18-year-old. And each time the pain would creep back in, I'd set up an appointment for the chiropractor. And 24 hours later, I was back on my feet and walking. And then 36 hours later, I was back at practice and sprinting. And so in just a matter of a few short hours, I had gone from a terrible limp limp, to an all-out sprint. Well, we're going to discuss an even more dark uh, transformation uh, and contrast of walks today in Ephesians 2. Our text is intentionally bookended by two different types of walks, verse 2 and verse 10. You'll see them. I'll put them on screen so you can see it more clearly. Look at verse 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Skip down to the end of our text for today. For we are created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. So two distinct walks here, the walking dead and then the walking good. How do you progress from the walking dead to the walking good? Well, let's talk about that. It's grace, right? First thing we're going to land on today is the fact that grace brings life to the walking dead. We'll see this in verses 1 through 6. Grace brings life to the walking dead. Now, Paul gets right after here. He gets right after identifying and then diagnosing a universal problem. No one doesn't have this problem that Paul is addressing. He says, you were dead. What does he mean by dead? I think our deadness just refers to our spiritual separation from God because of our inability to respond to the gospel. Let me say it again. Our deadness, and we were all dead, just refers to our spiritual separation from God because of our inability to respond to the gospel. Dead people don't squint when the light is bright. They don't cover their ears when the noise is loud, and they don't shiver when the weather is cold. They can't respond to any kind of external stimuli because they're dead. What Paul is saying is that spiritually speaking, each one of us, when we were born, we're born dead. Though we're all physically walking around, right? And and we've been doing that for many years. We're spiritually dead. We all are, is is the claim of the Christian Bible. We were born in the morgue. And without some kind of outside influence, we will never make it out of that morgue. Maybe some of you in here this morning are a little bit skeptical of this. Makes you feel kind of funny. Maybe you're a little bit doubtful. Maybe you're not a Christian and you feel very much alive. Well, I want to encourage you to consider an unnamed character from an unnamed movie that I've actually discussed here with you before and accidentally let the cat out of the bag. I won't do it again, but I want to encourage you to remember this character. Despite what this character felt, it didn't change what was true. Again, I'm not gonna name the movie in case it's still on your to-do list, but it's 20 years old and it's on you at this point in case I do let it slip out. Anyway, most of you will know this movie. At the end of the movie, this character and we, the audience, are surprised to find out that he's been dead the whole time. Don't say it out loud, but do you know which movie I'm referring to? Okay, old Bruce, am I right? That's a little Easter egg for you guys, if if you know what that means. Feeling a certain way does not make that feeling a reality. Feeling a certain way does not make that feeling a reality. You don't want to take the final breath in this life and find out after that breath that you are still dead in your transgressions and sins under the wrath of God for the way that you've rejected his call on your life. Ironically, Paul says here that we've constructed our own coffins with supplies that we ourselves have provided. See it in verse one? Our own trespasses and sins have created our coffins. And again, maybe you buck at this idea, I don't know, that you're truly And thoroughly bad, that you're a sinner, that you need saving. None of us really like to think of ourselves in that way. But according to God's word, this is simply not the case. We all, in our own way, have sort of shaken our fists in the face of God. We're all born in sin, dead in our sins. So, just for a second here with me, let's take the first five commandments and think about how maybe we've fallen short, even in just the first five commandments. We have worshiped wealth or sleep or comfort more than we have worshiped God. Second, we have disobeyed and dishonored our parents. All of us could raise our hands for that. We have lusted and cheated on our spouses, some of us. If not outright, then you've done it in your heart. We've stolen stuff a candy bar, a dollar, an answer on a test. We've fudged on our taxes. We've lied and gossiped about friends and family. Some of you have gossiped and slandered about others who are in this very room. You weren't born good or facing in the right direction, and neither was I. You were born dead in your sins. You're not sick, not just feeling a little off like my kids are today. You're dead. You're not even crawling in the right direction. Your pinky isn't twitching. There are no signs of life, spiritually speaking. We've been given a really dreadful inheritance by our very distant relative, Adam. Look at this from Romans 5, and notice the death talk. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. So hang with me here. I know this is kind of heavy to start with. The result of one man's sin led to the condemnation to all, of all human beings because we were all, in a sense, encapsulated in Adam. That's what Romans 5 is saying. None of us would have made a wiser, better choice than Adam made in those moments. We're all under God's condemnation because we've all sinned. We've all sinned because we were all born dead, and we didn't have the capability of not sinning. And so because of this, we are all inherently... Verse 3, if you look, says, By nature, inherently, we are under God's just, wrathful condemnation. Unless you think that you're the one exception to this, which I doubt any of us would raise our hands to that, uh, there is no exception here other than Jesus. Look at the end of verse 3. He says, you and I, are, uh, I, I, I say that you and I are children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind, is what the phrase is there in, in verse 3. Everybody is born dead. Everyone. You might see athletes on your TV later on today, amazing athletes. They were born the walking dead. You might watch rich, beautiful people act on TV and in movies. They were born the walking dead. You might hear an amazing musician in your car on the way home today. They were born the walking dead. You might have the sweetest, most beautiful, wonderful children. They were born the walking dead. You might be on the fast track to wealth and fame and prominence. You were born the walking dead. And unless something is done, something external to you, you're going to die the walking dead. This isn't a flattering, warm picture that Paul is starting out here in Ephesians 2, is it? But would you, would I, would we rather the scriptures lie to us or tell us the truth? If you're the person with cancer, wouldn't you rather hear the bad news so that you can discover the good news of possible treatments that will save your life. You don't want to be that person that ignores the doctor's warnings because it, it makes you feel bad about yourself. Turning a deaf ear to the truth because it's more convenient and less painful than it is to face it. I think I've told you guys before that I have a friend, and I kid you not, this is, this is God's honest truth, when his car's check engine light comes on, he gets a post-it note and he puts it right over top of the light so that he can't see it and be bothered by it. And we all know that will not end well for he or his car or his wallet. Don't turn a deaf ear this morning to the grace that God is offering. God is saying something to you as an individual, not just to us, but to you. You're dead, you're hopeless, and you cannot self-course correct. You don't have it in you. A few weeks ago, we were talking about Martin Luther if you recall, and how he tried to sort of self-course correct himself, kind of by like self-flagellating for the sins that he had committed. So he'd sleep on a stone floor without a blanket, or he'd go without food, or he'd give all of his money away. And Luther was never quite sure if he had done enough for God to wipe his slate clean. He was never sure if he was clean enough, hungry enough, poor enough, or cold enough to pay for his sins. And so he hated this ambiguity. It, it's what drove him crazy, and it drove him back to the word of God. He couldn't stand the ambiguity of wondering whether or not all was going to be well between his soul and God when he breathed his last. Each of us needs to come to this crisis point at some point during our life. If you're not accustomed to sort of considering the afterlife, could I just encourage you to do it for a brief moment this morning? Consider what happens when you breathe your last. And I want to just encourage you to think about that. It will not be a waste of your time. Recently, I was talking to a friend who admitted to partying a lot in her college years. And the way that she dealt with this in her conscience was to fix that on Sundays with her church experience. She tried to outweigh her bad actions with good actions on Sunday, hoping against hope that by the end of time, the scale would sort of tip in her favor and that she'd sort of square up with God and be okay in the end. But both Luther and my friend were wrong. Their walks were off kilter, way off kilter, and there was absolutely no way for them to self-course correct. They couldn't undo the deadly limp that they were born with. There's only one solution to our being born, the walking dead, There's only one solution, and it's grace. God giving you something good that you don't deserve in place of something bad that you do deserve. That's the one solution. If you were to look at verses 1 to 3, if we were to read them all again, you might assume that the solution, the answer, the the immunization against being a spiritual zombie is just stop acting in all the ways that it uh, presents as being broken. Just stop doing this stuff in verses 1 to 3, and you'll be a living, breathing Christian don't follow the godless world, ignore the devil, fight against the darker manifestations in your heart, you might think that the solution is to start acting in a different way. Instead of acting like a dead person, a person that's dead to all that God is and does and loves, start acting like a living person. But that's not what God, through Paul, says here at all. The solution is not for you to start acting differently. The solution is this that God has already acted. And this is good news for all of us. God has already acted on your behalf. And it's his action and his alone that can course correct for us. It's his action and his alone that can course correct for you. And so Paul does a couple interesting things here to highlight this for us. To highlight the fact that the solution to our problem is God's action and not ours. It's really interesting. First, The way he highlights this is he's only now introducing the main subject of this sentence. It's impossible to tell this in your English translations, Uh, but our text today in the original Greek is actually only two sentences long. We've talked before about how Paul was just a run-on sentence machine. Well, he's doing it again here. Verses 1 through 7 are one sentence, and then verses 8 to 10 are another sentence. And so here, all the way down in verse 4, don't cross your eyes with me now in this English lesson, okay? It's important, and it's exciting. Um, All the way down in verse 4, Paul is finally introducing the main subject of the first sentence. It's more than 75 words into the sentence. He introduces the main subject, and it's God. God is the main subject. Remember, we're trying to understand what it is that is the solution for us. Is it our actions, or is it God's action? 75 words into the sentence, we get our first main subject. So, this is not just bad grammar on Paul's part. This is a stylistic choice to make sure that we know, without a doubt, what the solution to our problem is. So, look at verse 4. But God, that's the main subject. And then you skip down to verse 5, and you can see the main verb made us alive. But God, made us alive. That's kind of like encapsulates the whole first sentence. You could pull all the other stuff out of there and just keep that little, those two little clauses together and you would understand at least uh, in an abbreviated way what this, what Paul is getting after. And so the point of the little English lesson here is this. The main thrust of this entire passage is not about our work. It's about God's work. And the first way he highlights this is by introducing the main actor in our salvation as God and not us. The second thing he does to highlight the fact that something is changing uh, is with a couple of uh, prepositional phrases in verses three and five. So if you look toward the end of verse three, notice that we're by nature. That's prepositional phrase number one. Nerding out this morning with me, thank you. Prepositional phrase number one is by nature, we are under wrath. In other words, we are naturally when we are born under wrath because of our sinful nature. And then in verse Five, we read that we can be saved from this wrath by grace that's the second prepositional phrase by nature under wrath by grace saved and so here's how god does this look at verse 4 god rich in mercy with great love makes us alive by grace and remember grace unmerited favor we don't do anything to get it from god we don't earn it unmerited favor from god because of jesus and so here's where the kindness of God this morning should start to blow our minds and start to like light a little fire in our, in our souls. It's here that we witness how God spends his money, how God spends his riches, like John talked to us about a couple of weeks ago. He spends his riches on us. He spent his son's blood so that we might be ransomed. This is the most precious expensive blood that has ever been spilt and that has ever been spent and God spent it on you And if you are in Christ Jesus blood is spent on you this is amazing grace amazing but maybe you're here today thinking I'm just not sure if God's mercy and grace are a match for my mess you just don't quite know what I did this weekend Maybe you're secretly addicted to alcohol or drugs. Maybe you experienced the shame of an abortion years ago, or you're nurturing some kind of secret affair right now. Maybe you just don't really believe in your heart of hearts that God has the resources to make right all the wrongs that you have done. But listen, God is rich in mercy. In verse 7, he tells us of his immeasurable riches. You're looking at a pastor whose heart has been wrecked by sin and shame even as I sat up here this morning in our confession time thinking about the ways that I have fallen short yesterday into today and just being crushed by shame and guilt. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. But do you know what? God's love for me isn't based on me. It's based on another's performance. Not based on my performance else I wouldn't have the love of God. That's why it's grace. It's unmerited favor, because you can't do anything to merit the good that God gives to us in Jesus. We deserve death and get life, while Jesus deserved life and got death. There's grace enough for me, and there's grace enough for you. God spends his great wealth on you. Well, this propels us into our uh, two final points for the day. All of, the, all of this grace should lead us to ask a question. Why? Why would God want to do this? What would provoke this level of generosity from a cosmic being to lowly humans? Why would God spend his wealth on me? Well, it's because, number two this morning, grace uniquely demonstrates the greatness of God. Grace uniquely demonstrates the greatness of God. Notice the break between... The past tense of verses 1 to 6, man, I didn't really think about this until I got up here, but we are doing a lot of English and syntax this morning. And I sort of apologize, but I don't really because this is inspired scripture. It's a way that Paul was inspired by the Spirit to write to us this morning. So hang, hang in here with me as we look at the tenses of verbs on a Sunday morning. Yay. Um, look at this in Ephesians 2.7. He did all that saving stuff in verses 1 to 6 in the past. And now we transition into the future in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So he's done all of this stuff for us in the past so that he can showcase his grace and his kindness in the future, in the coming ages, Paul says. Each of us, are in, each of us that are in Christ will be trophies of grace for God. God will be able to walk through the halls of heaven like he is walking through an art gallery, pointing at masterpieces, masterpiece after masterpiece, pointing at each of us with our diverse stories and our brokenness. And it'll be masterpiece after masterpiece after masterpiece of pardoned rebels. He'll point to my portrait and say, oh man, that one, that dude had no hope. But I stepped in. I rescued him. I set my love on him and I've spent all these years painting and now he looks like my son. Can you see it? The same will be said of you by God's grace. God's grace to you is rooted in his love for you, but it isn't ultimately about you. God's grace uniquely demonstrates his greatness. His grace is about his greatness. If you and I had any part in painting our own portrait In the image of Jesus. Any part whatsoever would diminish God's glory and power. That's why Paul is so careful to point this out here in verses 7 and 8. God saved you to show off his grace and kindness. Look at verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. Here it is so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. We had nothing to do with our rescue. We couldn't self-autocorrect. Listen, not even a chiropractor can adjust his own back, right? He needs another chiropractor, another kook, for those of you out here who don't believe in them, to fix his back. We couldn't adjust our own selves because we were dead. It wasn't our own doing. It wasn't a result of our works. Remember my friend and maybe some of you wanted to sort of counterbalance her, uh, her bad with her good, God here is saying in verses 7 and 8 that that won't work. There was nothing inside of us that God wanted. It wasn't good enough for God. And if, if there was, it would be reason for us to boast. That's why it says, so that, so that no one may boast. If we did have a reason to boast, we could look at someone who doesn't believe and sort of scoff at them and say, I believed, and you didn't. We'll never say that throughout all of eternity. We'll never scoff at anyone because we believed, and they didn't. We'll never say, I'm here, and you're there, because I was smarter than you. We'll always and forever say, I am here only because of grace, only because God acted when I couldn't. Paul couldn't make this any clearer, though we may have to exert a little bit of uh, more mental force this morning to wrap our minds around this. Look at the beginning of that uh, that sentence there in verse 8, where he says, "And, And this is not your own doing. And this is not your own doing. What is the this referring to? What is the this that we didn't do? What wasn't our doing? We really want to answer this question, right? For at least two reasons. First, Who wants to do something that they don't have to do, right? And then second, what if what you're already doing is the wrong thing to be doing? We have all the reason in the world to want to dig below the surface of this little phrase here for a second and figure out what the this is referring to in verse 8. And I think if you look at the previous phrase, just right before it, you're going to see the answer. What is the this? Well, it's being saved through faith. In other words, your salvation is a gift from God. And get this, maybe you've never thought about this before. Even your faith that you exercised in Jesus was a gift from God. You didn't conjure it up. You didn't make it up. You're not smarter than the person next to you who doesn't have faith. Your faith was a gift from God. This is why we should sing and shout from the top of our lungs, because we had nothing to do with it. We have no reason to boast. The only thing we ought to boast in is King Jesus himself. None of us should want to be the trophy that says, Hold up, God. Why are you taking pride in me? I made myself into this. I'm a self-made man. I made myself into this trophy masterpiece material. No one will ever say that because of grace. Grace and grace alone make us worthy recipients of God's love. You should be familiar with this because this is sort of like how we like to talk about the Eagles or whatever your favorite sports team. Or if you don't have a sports team, it's okay. But we even use personal pronouns when we talk about the Eagles, don't we? Like, we won today, or we lost today. You didn't win, and neither did you lose. A few years ago, the phrase, we won the Super Bowl, was shouted like probably four billion times in 24 hours in the city of Philadelphia. The problem is we didn't do anything, did we? Saying we won from a living room that's about 1,170 miles, I Google mapped it, a living room that's 1,170 miles away from where the actual eagles won is a bit disingenuous, is it not? The truth is, we didn't do a thing. They did it all, and yet we take pride in it. I'm not, you should feel no conviction about saying that. I'm, I'm not calling you out on, on grouping yourselves with the eagles. Um, I'm just trying to illustrate a point here. They did it all, and we take pride and even a degree of ownership in that Super Bowl trophy, don't we? When it comes to grace and salvation, we didn't do anything. That's why we have so much to sing about and to shout about and to raise our voices and hands about. Because an unwinnable victory was won for an unlovable person and won at an unbelievable cost with an immeasurable grace. This is the truth that you should circle your life around, that I should circle my life around. It is not our own doing. It is the gift of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you don't know this Jesus, you can access this free, unmerited grace from Jesus. Repent and believe. If you have no idea what that means, it's okay. Come grab me afterwards. We'll connect, and I would love to speak with you about that. Finally this morning... All of this grace should bear fruit in us. All of this grace should bear fruit in us. Grace propels the walking good. You might have to flip ahead to the next one. They might have gotten out of order. Sorry about that. Grace propels the walking good. Look at verse 10. For we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. Well, To what end? If verses 1 through 9 are like a host of seeds that are planted in the ground, what will be the fruit that comes out of those seeds? Well, verse 10 tells us good works, good stuff, the the stuff that God loves and does. Psalm 119 says that the Lord is good and he does good. The Lord is good and he does good. Good is who God is and good is what we do. Good is who God is and good is what we do. That's what all of this grace should produce. It should change your walk. Remember the walk at the beginning of our text in verses 2 and 3? Impassioned, selfish. Look at what grace does to fix that. You can flip back to the previous slide now. Grace turns selfish people into Godward people that do good in and for the world. Grace turns selfish people into Godward people that do good in and for the world. This is the very reason for which you were saved, to do good, to walk in good works, to, I, to be identified and known for, being committed to good in the way that God defines good. Just a quick caveat. I don't want us to misunderstand what Paul is saying here. He just finished telling us that the works we can't do, that the works we do can't earn us anything from God. It is not by works. So now he's saying, do good works. What gives? What, 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 what's the point here? Well, these good works cannot be the ground of our salvation or the subject of our boasting since they are the goal of grace and not the means of grace. Let's say it again because that's kind of complicated. Good works cannot be the ground of our salvation. We can't depend on them for our salvation. Or the subject of our boasting since they are the goal of grace and not the means of grace. The good we do is the fruit of salvation, not the basis of our salvation. A few concluding observations. First, grace is humbling. Uh, In a few minutes, we're going to sing this lyric in a song. It says this, I was in darkness all of my life. I never knew the day from the night, but spirit, you made me see. I swore I knew the way on my own. Head full of rocks, a heart made of stone, but spirit, you moved in me. Those are humbling words for us to sing as human beings. Head full of rocks? Come on. It can't be that bad, can it? Maybe your voice drops out when we sing that lyric. I ain't going to sing that. But it is that bad. In fact, it's actually worse than that. We didn't just have a head full of rocks, we were dead. And here's, here's the thing about Grace. It'll be totally honest with you, and then it'll take your breath away with its goodness. Grace will tell you just how bad the bad news is. Head full of rocks is bad news. But then when grace is finished, it'll tell you that the good news is better than you ever dreamed. It'll take your breath away. So sing that lyric louder than ever this morning. I had a head full of rocks, but grace rescued me. This morning, let grace sort of put you in your place. Grace sees you who, how you really are knows everything that you've done in the last week and it treats you how jesus should be treated we don't deserve it it's humbling grace is humbling grace is amazing that's why we sing amazing grace after all right christian no matter how long you've been a christian this was a one time true of you you were dead and now you're alive each sunday is a celebration of the fact that you were once dead and now you live Grace should cultivate a culture of joy in us. There should be smiles on our faces on Sunday. Third and lastly, grace produces action. Graced people grace people. People who have been shown undeserved favor give undeserved favor to those around them. Graced people were created for good works, says verse 10. And I just want to encourage us to not think the good works piece here that verse 10 is calling us to. What might this look like? It might look like telling your kids every day about grace. Showcase grace to them by telling about God's grace, telling them about God's grace. Or how about this? Speak a graceful word to a spouse or a friend or a child today. Withhold that little piece of criticism that you've just been dying to share with them. Withhold it. Instead, Build them up. Maybe they don't deserve it, but show them grace anyway. Doesn't it sound familiar? You didn't deserve it, but you got it anyway. Show grace and speak a graceful word. Get your phone out and text somebody. I appreciate this about you. Show them kindness that they haven't necessarily merited from you. How about show and tell of grace to your neighbors? Have them in for spaghetti and meatballs this weekend. Rake their leaves. Shovel their snow. Show them unmerited favor. Because you've been shown unmerited favor. Graced people, grace people. Be the walking good in your neighborhood. Or how about this? Serve here at Trinity. Jump in. We are not a church for ourselves. We are not members of a church for ourselves. We are here for each other, and we are not here to keep God's grace to ourselves. We really need everyone here to pour in, find a place to serve. Our connect team needs people. We have lots of projects that need to get done. Trinity Kids needs lots of help. We really need everyone here. Graced people, grace people. How about this? Show relentless hospitality among our church and in your neighborhood. Grace brought you to life to give life to those around you. How else are you going to do that other than around a table or across the table, over coffee, smile at someone, reach out and make a new friend so you can show and speak grace into their world. There are a million different ways that we could apply this concretely, but find one of these ways and do it today. A chiropractic adjustment isn't enough to fix our walk. We need a miracle. Grace is that miracle god rescues us the walking dead to showcase his glorious grace so go be a showcase of that by his grace independence on the spirit okay our band and our communion servers can come up now and as they come up uh, i have been backstage at a concert before to meet the artists and I wasn't alone, I was back there with a couple of other friends. Um, and some other people that I didn't know were also back there. Um, some people probably paid large sums of money to be able to, to meet the, the, the artists backstage. Some, some people probably won some kind of lottery to be able to get access backstage. Um, but I knew someone who knew someone in the band, and that was my access point to backstage. That was my ticket back there. I didn't have clout. <laughs> I didn't have money to spend on those expensive tickets. I had nothing in myself to get me back there. I knew the right person. That's all. I knew the right person. This table up here this morning represents something far grander than a backstage pass. This morning, you get to dine with the king of the universe. What? You can't come up here because you have the clout. You can't come up here because you have the money. You don't have anything in yourself worthy of coming up here, and neither do I. But most of us know the right person. We know how to get up here, and we get access because of this Jesus. This is unmerited favor. We didn't earn the right to access. Jesus earned it for us. If you don't know Jesus this morning, if you're not believing in him, this table isn't for you. This table is for those who have readily acknowledged that they are not good enough and they need the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ to get access to this meal with God. So these people come up today knowing that Jesus is better than them. Not that they're better than you. If you again, if you want to know about this Jesus and what it means to have faith and life in him, not only for this life but for the next, it would be our privilege to speak with you. But if you do consider yourself a Christian, come on up. And enjoy this unmerited favor from God to you today. I want to encourage you to take a couple of minutes to just contemplate the wonderful, deep, matchless grace of God. And then you can come forward, wait to eat and drink until the end, and we'll, we'll do that all together. Take a minute, contemplate God's amazing grace, and then we'll do it together.